Good morning. Welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning, and we're glad you're all here. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there is a spark of the divine in every person. And it is in the spirit of that heritage that I say, let us greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left and welcoming them here this morning. Will you say with me the words by which we light our chalice? In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Good morning, I'm Michael West. This morning's call to worship is from John Millspaw. Leave aside the little thoughts that distract you from the depths of your soul. For this is a holy place, and now is a holy time. Join with the others in this room, this community of seekers, and together let us find our Sabbath. We have people who come to this room on Sunday mornings who have roots and backgrounds in Christianity and Buddhism, Judaism, humanism, Hinduism, Mormonism, earth-based traditions. What holds us all together? One is that we call ourselves Unitarian Universalists and we stand on that theology. One of the things that holds this congregation together, another thing, is its mission which um, we write together and revisit together every eight years or so, but it's three more years till that happens. And <laughs> right now, this is our mission that we've agreed upon, and we say it together every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Our reading this morning is from Khalil Gibran. Work is love made visible. And if you cannot work with love, but only with distaste, it is better that you should leave your work and sit at the gate of the temple and take alms of those who work with joy. Now is the time in our service when we breathe together down into that place in our heart where we are who we are. If we practice this enough, we can find rest and stillness. This is where one of the doors to wisdom lies. We listen here for the voice of God as we understand God or for the voice of our inner wisdom. Or we just breathe and try to be still. It is in this place that one of the doors to compassion lies. We sit still and try to open ourselves to the suffering of the world. We hold in our hearts those who are ill or terrified, those who are grieving, those who are in harm's way because of war, greed, natural disaster. A 
As we enter the silence together, may we remember that the little noises of small children are part of the silence. If your child decides to have a soliloquy during this time, there's a room you can go to that's quiet. Let us enter into the sacred silence together. You're now invited to light candles of joy, sorrow, memory, hope. I think the end of a school year is a really tiring time for most of us. You know, the end of school activities, and we have all the picnics, and all the field days, and award ceremonies, and even if you win, it's still tiring, and um, you have exams to take, or exams to grade. A lot of us are tired. And you know you're tired when the, when the doves outside your windows sound like they're saying, file folder. I, I was last week what I call stretcher tired. And stretcher tired is, um, I wrote a column about it a long time ago. I came up on an accident, and um, this woman was on a gurney, and all these EMTs were working um, to make her comfortable, and the fire truck was there, and the whole situation looked really under control, and, and she looked peaceful. And um, I thought... Oh, I kind of would like to be her. Um, she's going to go to the hospital, and tender people are going to take care of her for for some days, and she'll get some rest. I had small children at this time, and um, and I shared this with a with a with a group in my South Carolina congregation. And one of them was an EMT, and they said, oh, no, it's not restful. She's going to go to the hospital, and they're going to cut her clothes off with great big scissors. And I thought, oh, okay. Um, she said, perhaps you could just pay for a day at the spa. <laughs> okay. That's, that sounds better. So when you're having usual days, you know that uh, taking a ride in an ambulance is probably not what you want to do that day. But when you're um, tired enough so that taking a ride in an ambulance sounds restful, you, you have to, oh, I don't know, rest. And, um, and I never have been that, that good at resting. In fact, I used to sort of eat instead of resting because if you eat a little something, you can just keep going. And I, um, I used to have kind of two speeds that was like all flat out, 100% or stop. And um, I used to have a greyhound dog who was the same way. We only shared that in common, pretty much. But I, um, I loved a poem by Rainier Marie Rilke when I found it, a poem about a swan walking awkwardly on the, the ground. And finally, when he got to the water, he was buoyed up and could paddle with grace It says, um, he lowers himself into the water, allowing himself to be carried wave after wave, while the swan, unmoving and marvelously calm, is pleased to be carried, each moment more fully grown 
more like a king farther and further on. One of the books of wisdom that I enjoy is the I Ching, and it talks often about the wisdom of not doing. And so I am learning to experiment with letting go, with not doing. One of my trainers, when I was learning to be a pastoral counselor, would say, I think I've told you this before, he would say, Meg, don't just do something, stand there. It's very Taoist, this idea of not doing. So I think, um, I, I love thinking about the, the meaning of that poem and what it means to let yourself be carried by the water. And does it mean that you're finding your element, that, that you're no longer struggling to do something for which you're not suited, but you have found the thing for which you were designed, and it's much more um, smooth when you found the thing you were designed for. Um, I don't know if it's that, or I don't know if it's a metaphor for, um, for allowing yourself to be carried by, in the words of the transcendentalists, that deep power in which we exist, which they call the oversoul. Some people might call God or uh, the Tao. You allow yourself to be carried. Hildegard of Bingen talked about being a feather on the breath of God. So when do you allow yourself to be carried, and when are you paddling underneath the surface, like the swan, if the swan wants to get anywhere? I, um, I think there is a way to rest, allowing yourself to be carried by the deep power in which we exist. Because you start deluding yourself about the source of your energy and the source of your um, the good things that you do, and you start thinking that it's all in you. And really, there is a root that we put down as human beings, or as spiritual or spirited human beings. We put our root down into the great soul or the great wisdom or the collective unconscious or whatever you want to call it, down into God. And um, you are nourished and fed and carried by that, and you hear yourself saying things that you didn't really know that you knew, or you find yourself painting something that is above something that you thought you could do, or writing something that is um, that breaks your own mind open. These are things that come up through the root from the deep power in which we exist. And in order to sink this root down, in order to let yourself be carried, you have to stop flailing around. And um, so we're in the middle of a series on the Ten Commandments, and the fourth commandment is to rest on the Sabbath day, the seventh day, and keep it holy. So you rest on the seventh day. Now, this commandment came to a group of people who had been enslaved, and their ancestors had been enslaved for 400 years. So that's many, many, many generations of people who had been enslaved, and that is a, a shaping situation for your consciousness and your unconscious. And I think people who had been enslaved for that many generations might um, be somewhat unaccustomed to dealing with making their own schedule. And so when the, when the Hebrew people were in the wilderness, they received instructions on working 
for six days and then on the seventh day resting. And the instructions parallel this rest with the divine creator resting on the seventh day, you know, creating for six days and then resting on the seventh day. So it's just like, you know, God rested on the seventh day. Who are you not to rest on the seventh day if the divine one needs rest or enjoys rest? Perhaps um, you might as well. Now, keeping the Sabbath day holy is something with which we were tortured as children. Uh, I grew up in in a denomination that didn't um, use the word Sunday. We called it Sabbath. So on Sabbath, here's what you were allowed to do. Go to church, read the Bible, memorize the Bible, eat, nap. That's it. And if you wanted to do other recreational stuff, you were chided gently but firmly. We would see um, kids in the afternoon in packed out station wagons going to the lake with their parents. And we'd go, Mama, they're going to the lake. This is North Carolina, so you have to say, Mama. And she would say, Honey, they're Catholics. So my whole childhood, I wanted to be Catholic. Because <laughs> it just sounded like they had a lot more fun than we did. And Mama would let us play on Sabbath sometimes, but she kept it between the lines. So we would sit and we would play, you know that old game, Battleships, where you divide your paper into a grid and you put battleships and you guess the numbers in the grid and see if you can hit each other's battleships. Well, we played that, but in Sabbath, we had to call it uh, Going to Jerusalem. And instead of battleships, we had mules. We had mules on our grid. And your opponent was one of the thieves in the gorges going up the hill toward Jerusalem, uh, taking um, pot shots, throwing stones at your mule. So, um, so that was okay. It is not surprising that except for myself, Almost without exception, all of my cousins in my generation are lawyers. Because we spent all of Sabbath trying to find loopholes. <laughs> the rules, we would, we would set our alarm clocks for 12.01 so we could get up in the middle of the night Monday morning and, and dance a little bit and play our records before falling back into bed because it wasn't Sabbath anymore. Anyway, so the Ten Commandments say, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, and everybody's got their idea of what that means. It used to be, I don't know, when y'all were children, um, what the rules were. When I was a little kid in North Carolina, you couldn't uh, mow your yard on a Sabbath, on a Sunday. Really, even the Methodists couldn't. Um, People would look at them askance if they were mowing on Sunday. Um, you could do uh, some other stuff, but work and all those stores were closed and you couldn't buy anything. And then gradually, um, as my uh, neighbors in South Carolina might say, the secular humanists unraveled all of the laws that upheld the sacredness of Sunday. Thank you. So... Um, 
at the beginning, there was just the commandment. And then, you know, we have the, the religious professionals who for 2,000 years um, really thought about what it means. And the religious professionals in the Jewish tradition are very intellectual and um, very uh, concerned with doing things correctly and with and enjoying very much the discussion of the definition of words, etc. And so for 2,000 years, the rabbis talked about, well, what does work really mean? And on the Sabbath, you're not supposed to work. What is that? And what is rest? And so I'm just going to read you a tiny bit of what was eventually figured out about what was prohibited and, and uh, what was allowed. And I just want to say that... Um, I thought that Unitarians were bad about complicating things that could be simple, but I think the rabbis might take the prize, but um, I say this almost with admiration, even though I think they made resting so difficult, you'd pretty much call your lawyer before you did anything to figure out whether you were breaking the Sabbath or not. But you can have um, no planting, no gathering, no threshing, no grinding, no sorting, and um, all of these are extremely are defined in extreme detail. Take sorting, for example, which is defined as separating the desirable from the undesirable. Um, sorting or selecting is permitted on Sabbath when three conditions are fulfilled simultaneously. It is an absolute imperative that all three conditions be present at the time of the sorting. Number one, the sorting has to be done by yad, by hand. The selection has to be done by hand and not using an, any kind of instrument. Um, number two, ochel mitoch pasolet. All right, take the good from the bad and not the bad from the good. The desired objects must be selected from the undesired and not the reverse. Mayad, immediate use. The selection must be done immediately before the time of use and not for later use. There's no precise amount of time indicated by this immediate use, but the criteria, the criteria used to define immediate use, um, they relate to the circumstances of what you're doing. So, for example, if you're peeling a fruit, you're separating the undesired peeling from the desired fruit, which is okay on Sabbath if you're going to eat the fruit right away. Um, sorting silverware is permitted when the sorter intends to eat the Sabbath meal immediately, but if the meal is for later, you can't sort the silverware for that. Um, okay, so just for, as an example, you know when you make beans, you, you have the bag of beans and you have to soak them for a little while and sometimes there are little stones in there. And so you can open the bag of beans and sort if you're going to eat the beans right as soon as they're ready. And if you sort by hand, and if you take the beans from the stones and not the stones from the beans. That's according to what I read, and I, and I am far from an expert on Judaism. So I'm just thinking, um, this is ancient legalese. The rabbis were very much like the lawyers of the time, and you know how complicated we make all of our laws just so we can be absolutely crystal clear about what is meant and what is allowed and what is not allowed. 
And the people were interested in this. And they would call the rabbi and say, Rabbi, I have this situation. What can I do? And the rabbi would give a considered legal opinion on this. So we need to rest. Ugh. It's not always simple. Our heroes on TV go, I work hard and I play hard. Where's, there's no resting in that. We answer the question, how have you been? By, oh, busy, busy, crazy busy. Yeah. Wonderful writer George MacDonald says, work is not always required. There is such a thing as sacred idleness, the cultivation of which is now fearfully neglected. I'm going to tell you about a study by neuroscientists at the University of California. The neuroscientists are studying different brain systems. And apparently there's a whole brain system that is activated when you're paying attention to visual cues. You're doing something, doing a project, paying attention, uh, reading a book with attention, watching TV with attention, listening to music with attention, trying to figure out, is this the melody? Is this the, what's the bass doing? Where's the, where are the themes? What's the key change? Um, those are activities that activate this attention brain system. And there's a whole nother brain system that is activated when you are doing inner reflective non-attention. It's called, um, they call, they're calling it right now the default mode system. So, or the DM system. So you have the DM system. You can Google this and get lots of lectures on it. Uh, I'm not going to give you a lecture on it. I'm just going to go, man, this is interesting. So, uh, and I always have a suspicion of people who start a conversation by going, oh, you'll find this interesting because it's usually really boring. Um, <laughs> as soon as they, if they have to say that, it's, you know, eh. but I just want to say I found this interesting. Okay, so the default mode network is activated when you're not paying attention, i.e., when you're staring into space, when you're daydreaming, when you're meditating, when you're not thinking. And there has to be enough do-nothing time in your life so that the other brain system network can really work its best. So you want to toggle over to the default mind often enough so that your brain gets a rest. See, watching TV doesn't do it, even though watching TV is fun. Um, Playing video games doesn't do it, unfortunately, although playing video games is fun. Nothing wrong with it. It's just that it doesn't activate the default mode. So if you want to get into the default mode so that you can become more rested, you are just supposed to daydream. And it says um, these brain systems are important for uh, mental processing of things that have happened during your day or during your life, um, processing of memories, remembering things, um, things that uh, it's important for uh, planning your day. So, so the default mind helps you remember your memories, it helps you process the present, and it helps you plan for the future. That sounds pretty useful. So um, this kind of rest mode for your brain, i.e. daydreaming, is something that educational theorists are now trying to figure out how to get into school day. Because you can't just lesson, 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 lesson. You have to allow the kids to learn to turn that off and reflect internally at some point. Otherwise, their little brains are going to be fried like ours are. 
Artists of all kinds know that if you don't spend enough do-nothing time, you don't get much art. Your brain is like a mule that just lies down in the middle of the road, and you can yell at it about deadlines. You can even try to kick it, but it's not going to get up. Once your brain is fried, you have to do something like, you know, go on vacation, stare at the water, or stare at the desert, or stare at the chickens in your backyard, or stare at the sky. And that is actual rest for your brain, ruminating. So everybody knows that feeling of having your brain locked down. And sometimes when your brain is, is overwhelmed with something to process, you, your body will just demand that you stare into space. And people think there's something wrong with them. I remember when 9-11 happened, um, I went right home because one of my children was at home and I wanted him not to see it on TV and be scared. So I went home. Fortunately, he was watching cartoons. And so, uh, no big deal. He was sick that day. And um, so I, to- I got to tell him gently what happened. And then the next day, I just couldn't, I remember trying to drive home from work, and I, um, I thought, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not able to drive right now. I just pulled into this parking, you know, like a driveway of an old abandoned barn, and I just sat there for probably 40 minutes just staring at the barn because my brain couldn't process. Same thing when you're going through a divorce. Your brain locks down. There's really something called divorce ADD where you just can't uh, attend. There's also losing your job, ADD. There's also grief, ADD. You can't, your brain needs a lot of staring into space time in order to process what's happening to you when a lot is happening to you. So I want to urge you to take a Sabbath. If you don't take one day out of every seven to stare into space, you can take a Sabbath during your day sometime and just take 10 minutes Really, probably, um, there's a certain red light on my way to work that's almost 10 minutes, so you can. (laughs) I'm not sure that counts, though, actually. But if our time of silence during worship is your only time when you sit and breathe, uh, that's not enough. So I would encourage you to find a Sabbath during your day. And I want to finish by reading you this Mary Oliver poem, the patron saint of Unitarian Universalist poets. The Summer Day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who's eating sugar out of my hand, who's moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Please, if you will, say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice. 
We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. I know this rose will open. I know my fear will burn away. I know my soul will unfurl its wings. I know this rose will open. Go in peace. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org.